Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. My title today is So It Begins. Gospel Expansion by Proxy. That may seem like an odd kind of title, but I hope by the time we introduce this text, you'll understand the epic nature of the text before us. Mark chapter 6. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 13. And Jesus, he, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority, authority over unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Let's start with a question this morning. Who do you trust most? And how much do you trust these people that you trust? Who do you trust the most? Let me drill down a little further. Who do you trust to watch your children? Who do you trust to handle your finances? Who do you trust to homesit when you're gone? Who do you trust to transport your most valuable possessions from one place to another? And maybe as much as anything, who would you trust to communicate a critically important message to someone else? Well, this marks a monumental shift this passage does in the ministry of Jesus because he has been the anointed one, proclaimed savior, announced king of the kingdom of God. He's the one who has proclaimed the message of the good news of the gospel. He's the one who's preached repentance. And now... He takes his disciples who have been with them and he sends them out, here it is, without him to do the same thing. This is truly an epic moment in the history of the Christian faith. Look for a moment back at Mark chapter one. Mark 1, 14, after John had been taken, John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
That was his message. He announced the king and the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God is made up of two things. It's a people and a place. He's organizing the people, and John 14 says he's gone to prepare the place. Well, the question becomes, is he alone in this endeavor? Is he the only proclaimer? Is he the only preacher of the tidings of good news In this passage, we see the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand through the coming of Jesus. And now he is going to announce that same message, get this, by proxy. It's an important word. A proxy is someone with the authority to represent someone else. There are legal proxies. There are medical proxies. There are voting proxies. A proxy is a representative, a substitute, a delegate, an agent, a surrogate, a stand-in, a go-between. That's the right out of the dictionary. And here in Mark 6, we witness the great mission of the church for every believer then and since as proxies of Jesus, representatives of the Savior, those who do what he did, get this, in his place when he's not there. That's what a proxy does. We're witnessing here in Mark 6, the great mission of the church then and now for the disciples and every believer. Jesus sends out 12 disciples as his proxies. They preach for him, they heal for him, they speak for him, but he's not there. This is really important. These men had never gone to seminary. Most of them were blue-collar fishermen with little education compared to those who were teaching in the synagogues and certainly in the temple. I think this is an important passage because it's a microcosm of our ministry. It's a microcosm of the ministry of every believer since then and the ministry we would inherit as we examine these verses then very quickly We're gonna identify the discernible marks of these first disciples. Now, this is really important. Please listen carefully. These discernible marks for these early disciples have some obvious and unique applications for them in their setting in the apostolic age, but they also have implications for you and for me as gospel proxies as well. So let's dive in and look at six marks of the master's missionaries. These are disciples, but they're about to be disciples turned missionaries now. Six marks of the master's missionaries. You won't find the term missionary in the Bible. You'll find that in the English uh, um, titles, Paul's first missionary journey. A missionary is definitionally one who is sent by the Lord, sent by the message of the gospel, compelled by the truthfulness of the gospel, sent out to tell people who don't know the message, the message. There is a sense in which we were all missionaries. There's also a sense in which we send people to places where there is very little or no gospel witness who are more intentional in their mission than you and I are, maybe they are in a a full-time capacity. Let's look at that more closely as we go along. Six marks of the master's missionaries. We are going to run fast here. The first mark is delegated authority. They have delegated authority. 
Verse 7, Jesus summons the 12. The word summon is a very interesting word. Uh, um, it's uh, proskaleo, call before. It mean to, means to bring someone officially before you and give them an official sanctioned injunction that they should follow. A technical legal term oftentimes. He calls them before himself. He had many followers. We know that they had followed him up through the healings and in uh, uh, the previous chapter. He's now standing with many of them. He calls the 12 aside. He touches them. And he began to send them out. Interesting words, send them out. Apostolo. Or apostello. Recognize anything from that word? Apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent. This is the verbal form. He sent them out. Now, there are the 12 official apostles. We'll learn more about them in just a moment. But there's also a sense in which anyone who is sent is a lower A apostle sent by God. You understand that? There were the 12 official ones, but we have a sending, compelling mission as believers as well. He sends them out, sends forth, launches them. And it says in pairs. Why in pairs? Why in pairs? There is such a grace in this. These men hadn't gone to seminary. They had spent probably a year and change with the Savior at this point. They had heard him teach. Anything they would have taught would have been wonderfully spiritually plagiarized from Jesus, the master teacher. They hadn't been official school. They would have had no recognized pedigree educationally when they walked into a town to teach. He sends them in pairs. Why? The text doesn't tell us, but we can, we can speculate. First of all, for accountability. No doubt that they, they had to make sure that each other was faithful. Secondly, I think for comfort, there's a great missions, I think, insight here that missionaries sent in groups and in teams and in pairs have a special, unique ministry with and among each other. And every time I read this, I wonder, I just wonder who went out with Judas? Because we find out later, he, Judas, was a part of this preaching and proclaiming ministry. And we find out nothing from this or other texts, Matthew 10, the parallel passage, which indicates that Judas was not proclaiming the message, which is another footnote to tell us. The message and the Savior have power, not the messenger. Then he says, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Gave them authority over the unclean spirits. If you look back at Mark chapter three, when he organizes the 12, he went, goes up onto a mountain, verse 13. He went up on the mountain, summoned them, same word, commissioned them to himself, the ones he wanted. They came to him. He appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and they could, he could send them out to preach. In other words, his, his seminary was discipleship personally by listening to him, watching him, learning from him. One of the things they learned is that he had power to heal diseases. He had authority to speak to and cast out demons. And we find out here that that's exactly what they do as well. Now think about this. These men 
who we honor rightly so, went out from Jesus. And by the way, if you read the rest of the gospels, they would prove over and over and over again that they didn't get it completely. These cookies were not quite baked, in other words. There's some soft, squishy parts of their theology they had to work out. I love the fact that Jesus didn't say you have to have a PhD. He said, you know me, you know my message, go. He gives them his authority. Wow. He gives them his authority to point people to God, to point people to himself, to listen to the message. Listen, none of us ever fulfills God's mission in our lives on our own merit. I, as one of your pastors, have no authority in this pulpit. I have no authority in this church that's not delegated by God through his word, none. Unless there's book, chapter, verse attached to anything we would claim on your or any Christian's life, it's not legitimate authority. It's always delegated. He gives them his authority. Boy, I just think of a little footnote, how much we should be praying for our missionaries who've been sent out, who have a delegated authority. They're not super Christians. They're not, they are imperfect people sent by God, operating on his authority, by his power. Mark's specific here, by the way. He tells us that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now, if you're reading Mark and you think unclean spirits, where do you remember unclean spirits recently in the, in the context? Gennesaret, the Gerasene demoniac. That's on purpose that Mark links this phrase, unclean spirits, with that event. In other words, as radical and crazy as that seemed, he gave the disciples his authority to deal with such demonic spirits. I think it's important to note here, by the way, that this authority over the demons was not a permanent situation. If you think about it, Paul instructed the Ephesians how to deal with the demonic realm, Ephesians 6. If there was any place in the Bible where we were going to learn how to cast out demons, how to talk to unclean spirits, it would be in the, 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 the magnum opus, the Mount Everest of spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6. And nothing is said about talking to demons or unclean spirits. Nothing is said about casting them out. Instead, we're to put on the whole armor of God, apply Christian virtue, and James says, stand firm against the devil. Resist him, and he will flee from you, James 4, 7. And I say that because the modern charismatic notion of talking to demons would have been completely foreign to the early church. These men could and they did. And there's a reason why we'll see in a moment. When we're told how to deal with the demonic, we're told stand firm against the devil, have Christian character in Ephesians 6. We'll come back to that in a moment. Delegated authority. They didn't have their own authority. They had delegated authority just as you and I do. Secondly, provisional dependency. Second mark, provisional dependency, verse eight. And he instructed them that they should, this is odd. I'm gonna get you ready to go on a trip. I'm gonna give you a packing list. Here you go. Take nothing for their journey except. The emphasis on take little or nothing, just these few things. 
And he gives an interesting list. Staff, no rolled ankles. No bread, no food. No bag to carry stuff that you don't have. No money in their belt. They would keep money in a belt underneath their tunics, which was the, the safest place they could keep it. Don't even take that. But to wear sandals. And do not put on two robes or tunics. What is this about? Interesting point of instruction. Very interesting to note that these four items that Jesus speaks of for the 12 are identical to the belongings that God instructed the Israelites to take with them when they fled Egypt. Be minimalist. What would it do if you had very little to subsist on? It would cause you to trust God who could alone provide your provisions. They would be in a constant state of dependency. You know, you read these kind of, of admonitions and you understand what Jesus meant when he said, pray like this, give us our daily bread. These men had to. Lord, would you feed us today? The most minimal essentials would ensure that they place their trust not in their supplies, not in their training, but in the one who sent them. One commentator says it like this. It would be like laying out on your bed everything you plan to take on a trip and then leaving everything but your coat and your toothbrush behind. True service of Jesus, he says, is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions, end quote. Wow. He didn't say, I wanna make sure that when you go from point A to point B to point C, that point B has a, a supply station. He intended for them, get this, he intended for them daily to look to him for provisions. A fully met support system would not allow them to develop their faith. Think about that. He says, only wear one tunic, not two. Why? Why, Why don't wear two? What if it's cold? Why not wear two tunics? What is this about? Very interesting. To wear two tunics in that day was to be a little bit pretentious. It's like wearing a, a, a very formal overcoat that everyone would say, oh, they're a man of beans. He was basically saying, don't look like anything important. Don't show off by how you dress. Don't show up with a flashing neon sign that says, I am an apostle. Maybe you want to come hear me. Look at how I dress. Look how important I am. Maybe even say, look at who I'm staying with, which leads us to number three, material contentment. Delegated authority, provisional dependency, material contentment. Verse 10, and he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. What? Is that odd? 
What if I get there and this poor old widow with a broken down extra room out back puts me there. I preach, the people like it, and they say, whoa, we got a much better set of accommodations for you. The possibility was that the village might be receptive and they could be invited to a better place, more comfortable lodging. However, Jesus tells them not to dishonor the home that accepted them with wonderful hospitality by saying, I have something better. It was a kindness to the hospitable home. It was also a gut check on their pride. Just stay there. This is not about you and where you stay and what you get. Stay where you are. Be content with whatever material you have. You know, I've, I've had to put this a little bit to the test over the years traveling overseas. I, I remember one of the times that I was <laughs> in, a, in a third world situation and uh, placed in a room. And my, I hope I don't lose my ministry by telling you this. They, they checked me in. And I walked out. There was no air conditioning, 100 plus degrees, 90 plus humidity. And I just remember saying something like, I've got to teach and preach all day. Well, I mean, I should probably have better accommodations just to prepare myself. Now, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit verbally speaks to one, but if he ever did in my life, I heard him that day. And it was something like this. Who do you think you are? This is what they live in all the time. You wimp. I think the Holy Spirit might have said that to me. You wimp. There's another side of that too. There was, there were people who accepted these apostles in and were hospitable. There's a lesson there for you and me. Is our, are our homes always ready to accept traveling Christians? It's actually a qualification to be a leader and spiritual elder, an elder in the church, a spiritual leader and elder. If you're not ready to be hospitable, you cannot be a leader in the church. How about that? That's how important this system was. Be content with what you have, in other words. That's another way of saying, don't be fond of, I love the King James, filthy lucre, sordid gain. Looking at what you can gain materially from the ministry. Be content. Number four, ministerial discernment. Verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, stop the press. Jesus tells them basically the lesson he had already outlined in the parable of the soils in quoting Isaiah chapter six, which said only a tenth of the people would respond and believe. If you go with the percentages in, in the parable of the soils, one out of four, 25%. It's not teaching exact percentages, just that believing people would be in the minority, unbelievers in the majority. And he sets them up. He says, you're gonna go into some cities and be ultimately rejected. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, receive you, that's the hospitality, listen to you, that's to hear your preaching. As you go out from there, he doesn't say leave. He assumes you're leaving. As you're going out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. 
We should expect that there will be rejection to our message. We should expect there will be rejection to our evangelistic efforts. We should expect that our church continues to be called a dinosaur at minimum and ultimately persecuted for what we believe. There would be villages, Jesus says, where no hospitality would be extended. Their preaching would be rejected. (coughs) In this case, they were to shake the dust off their feet. Interesting, as a testimony and a warning to the villagers and go elsewhere. William Lane, the excellent uh, commentator of Mark, says this. Let me read you his, his notes on this. They're very helpful. The instruction is intelligible in a lot of Jewish practice. It was the custom of pious Jews who had traveled outside of Israel to remove carefully from their feet and clothing all the dust of the alien lands in which they had traveled. By this action, they disassociated themselves with the pollution of those lands and their ultimate judgment. An analogous action now happens on the part of the disciples who would declare that a village was pagan in character, just like those unbelieving cities, It would provide a warning that the disciples had fulfilled the responsibility that those who had rejected the mission would have to answer to God. The removal of the dust from the feet belongs to the category of symbolic realism. I like that. It's a prophetic act designed to provoke thought on the part of the rejecting villagers. The mission of the disciples had a selective character. Their presence in a town or village determines which of the inhabitants are open to the word of the kingdom of God and which were not. They should wipe the dust from their feet and break communication with a village and consign it to judgment. This provision indicates that they were coming out of the disciples like Jesus himself and the character of sifting and gathering the true people of God, end quote. What he's saying is pretty simple. A Jew traveled outside of the land of Israel, considered it unclean territory, would come back into Israel right before crossing the border, would shake the dust off their feet, saying that's a pagan nation. Now the disciples are said, do that to a village that rejects me as a testimony against them, a sign of judgment. There is a time to evangelize and plant the seed And please listen to Jesus carefully. There is a time to walk away. There's a time to be quiet. Can I just express to you this reality even in my own family? I have family members, extended family, who I've told the gospel to over the years who have basically said, we are uninterested, not interested in hearing anything else from you, Rick. You're a preacher, one said, you're a Jesus freak. Another said, this is, this is for you. We know you're serious about it. We're okay. We don't need to hear it. And I think early on, I was really compelled to want to argue when the debate, if you've been faithful to tell the gospel, maybe it's time to just back off, live in front of them and be ready for them when tragedy strikes or when opportunity happens to talk about the gospel. First Corinthians Three, we know well, verse five, Paul, excuse me, what is Apollos? What is Paul's servants through whom you believed? Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Then Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. We never know where we are in the process of someone's evangelistic due processes with God. 
Someone may actually build on what you say. Be faithful. And if you have to shake the dust off your feet and say, I'm just going to move on and just be sure you've been faithful to give the message and then leave it in the hands of the Lord. Marks of the master's missionaries. Delegated authority, provisional dependency, ministerial contentment, ministerial discernment, knowing when to press and when to walk away. Number five, faithful preaching. You have to know this as a part. Or don't think of what I'm doing right now. Think of proclamation, faithful proclamation, faithful sharing of the gospel. They went out and preached that men should repent. We find out from this text, faithful preaching, faithful evangelism, faithful proclamation involves two critical parts. The act of proclaiming the message and the accuracy of proclaiming the message. The act and the accuracy. The act is clear. They went out and preached. They did what Jesus did. The accuracy, they preached that men should repent. That's, by the way, the exact same message that that John the Baptist preached, Mark chapter one, verse four. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1, 15. Jesus comes on the scene. We're introduced to his ministry by, by Mark who says, time is fulfilled, quoting Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Listen, friends, there was no easy believism in the evangelistic effort of Jesus or the apostles. It always involved turning from sins, not perfectly, not in perfection. It always involved trading your sin for his righteousness, putting our affections to hate our sin more than love our sin, to pursue righteousness more than to pursue sin. It means to turn. Repentance means to turn, turning away from sin and toward Christ. We don't ever do that perfectly. I understand that but it does include fruit, following, and faithfulness. No easy believism. To hear and respond to the gospel was to repent of sins. Their message was not God wants to make your life better and give you your best life now. The message was, you're a wretch. And you need deliverance from your sin and you can't provide it yourself. But God has through the righteousness of Christ and he's forgiven your sins by his death in your place. You you deserve the cross, he took it for you. He's provided that. We've been talking for the last few weeks in our Sunday school hour uh, Dr. Strain has been talking about the, the importance of understanding men and women's roles biblically. And over and over, over the last five, six weeks, there's this recurring theme that this is not what the world believes. This is not where the world is going. We are gonna be dinosauric at first, but the day will come when we'll be a threat. We're always seeing vestiges of that. Still, the message is, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible calls us to do and to be and believe. We wanna stick with what God has said. Nothing can be farther from appropriate than to do that with the message of the gospel itself. 
if you ever say, well, I don't, I don't really know enough to proclaim, to teach, to preach. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to evangelize. And if you don't know enough to evangelize, let's talk about how your soul can be converted. You have to know the basics. So when you see that they went out preaching, don't disassociate that from our mandate as contemporary disciples to evangelize and proclaim the message of the whole counsel of God as well. Number six, supernatural power. This is one of the distinguishing points between us and them, supernatural power, but maybe not as distinguished as distinguishing as you might at first think. We find out what happened. He gives us a little bit of narrative. They preached in verse 12 and verse 13. They were casting out many demons. Wow, that sounds like the Gerasene demoniac. They were anointing with oil many sick people and they were healing them. Jesus knew these men would be his proxy. He also understood his own reputation of authority and power. This makes such logical sense. People knew of Jesus. They heard of Jesus. They knew of his wonders. They knew of his grace. They knew of his teaching. They knew of his, his interaction with demons. They knew of his ability to heal, to cleanse lepers, to raise the dead. And if these disciples went out, the tendency in this first generation would be to say, and who are you? We want the Nazarene. And so to provide their pre-canon authority, think about this, no Bible, nothing to point to, what he gave them was the same powers that he had of dealing with demons and sick people. And Matthew, chapter 10, chapter 10 verse seven, eight says, and even raising the dead. I don't know why Mark didn't put that in his account. Jesus says, you will raise the dead just as he had done Jairus' daughter just before them. The radical arm of the charismatic movement likes the demon control and power. But I've never heard anyone in that movement raise the dead. This was unique, unique to these men. What do we make of this for us? Listen, the New Testament explicitly tells us that these supernatural powers and feats were unique to them. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle, this is how you knew whether one was true or fake, were performed among you in all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul tells us exactly what these were to do. Attest to the truthfulness and the legitimacy of their apostleship. Hebrews chapter two, verses one to four. For this reason, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from the truth from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it, was at the first spoken through the Lord. Here it is. It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. 
In other words, these supernatural expressions were attached to the first generation apostles so that people would know that their message was indeed divine. I firmly believe once the canon of scripture was coming together, once the New Testament was finished being written, you had the New Testament and Old Testament, there was no more need for supernatural attestation. There was now a written attestation to the truthfulness of God. Be careful. Be careful saying, well, they did supernatural things and I don't. Can I encourage you? In John chapter 14, Jesus says, the future generations will do more than I'm doing, more than you're doing. When you win a dead soul to the living Savior and conversion happens and faith takes place in a person's heart, that is supernatural. Don't think that just because they had these less significant manifestations of the supernatural that we're not a part of the more, the more gravitas, the the greater supernatural feat of seeing a person who's won to Christ. He commissions them and he sends them out instead of him. He trusts these men to go and do this for him and he's not there. I just wonder as they're walking off with their minimal provisions, looking at their, their partner and going, how's this gonna go? Their faithfulness says it went exactly as Jesus predicted. Some believed, some wanted to kill them. Turn the key a little bit. I think these six marks also exist for you and for me. You and I have a delegated authority. Our authority is delegated to us through God and his word. You and I should exercise provisional dependency. Thank God for what we have. Pray to God for what we need and not let living in this century, in this country, Fool us into thinking that we don't need God. We should have material contentment. This is not the giving sermon, but you know what? It is the giving sermon. Not to the church, but to the Lord. Are we pursuing material pleasures over extension of the gospel? Book of Ecclesiastes is clear. If anyone is gonna enjoy the things of this world, it ought to be a Christian who can give God glory for them. But when we do that at the expense of advancement of ministry in our own lives and our own hearts, there's a problem. Ministerial discernment, boy, I think that applies to us as well. Knowing when to push and when to back off. When to debate and when to be, have our apologetics sharpened and in good order. And when to just say, you know, I'm just gonna pray for you. The Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach if, if he might lead some to the knowledge of the truth, to repentance. Faithful preaching. Is there anyone in here who cannot identify someone in your mind right now who you know, who you probably should tell the gospel to, 
that you haven't yet. Maybe it's the guy you see every week at, at the quick trip when you're getting your coffee. Maybe it's the guy at Starbucks. Maybe it's the person working at the grocery store. Maybe it's your neighbor. None of us is exempt from, let me just say it this way. If any of us don't know someone we need to evangelize, we need to expand our friend group. We need to be more faithful. I almost wanted to give an assignment today and say, everyone, let's make sure we share the gospel with someone who needs it this week and tell each other about it next week. Maybe I will just make that assignment. Let's try that. And then lastly, supernatural power. We have we have the supernatural power of the gospel that raises the dead spiritually and will one day do so physically. We know of the presence of the Holy Spirit who is here to comfort and guide and keep. We know the holiness of the Father. We have the message that we can proclaim that is a supernatural, life-changing, life, worldview-altering set of facts. These marks for these men have such practical application for you and me. Maybe not in the exact setting. We're not going out and casting out demons. But we are going out to combat the demonic world with the message that Jesus saves sinners. Right? What a privilege that we've been given that. The baton, and it's a very bloody baton, has been handed to you in your hand. You too are a sent one, small a apostle, disciple, missionary, preacher, as much as anyone who's ever claimed the name of Christ.